Well, good day, everyone, and welcome here from a scorching hot afternoon in London. And I'm delighted to have a dear friend, Emmanuel Altman, dialing in today from Paris. And we're here to talk about the European merger and acquisition landscape. And Emmanuel is going to talk to us about some surprising shots in the arm for this market from COVID-19. Now, you'll know me. I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien. And it really is a privilege to be able to introduce so many of these uh, fun and fascinating webinars. And I can only do so because our sponsors are extremely kind and generous and allow us to range quite widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. And today is very clearly in that space. Emmanuel is a dear friend of, of many years who spent quite a bit of time in the M&A market here in London, as well as in Paris, and has a, quite an unparalleled view of the European market, but particularly uh, an, an overview of technology firms, uh, which I know will be of great interest to our sponsors, uh, as well as to those of you who kindly dialed in today. Uh, I'm anticipating quite a few questions and comments because it's, it has been a surprising landscape. Uh, at the beginning of the crisis uh, pandemic uh, in March 26, uh, 2019, what am I saying, 2020, everything was doom, uh, doom, doom and gloom. Uh, and I think Emmanuel's got some interesting facts to share with us, which will change all of our perceptions. Anyway, the format is uh, quite familiar to those of you who dial into these. Uh, I will get out of your way as quickly as possible so you can hear from our expert. Emmanuel will be presenting for about 20 minutes or so, and then we'll move into questions and comments. And, and a few things, if I might. Uh, firstly, the slides are already available and up on the website and in the chat room, so you need to go back or follow them. They're there for you already. Secondly, there is a recording, and this recording will be going up in approximately two working days, i.e. about Thursday afternoon, for you to share with friends, colleagues, or rewatch. Uh, and finally, uh, I am here with you, and the way that we're going to be handling the Q&A is if you could please type those questions into the GoToWebinar question and answer facility. I'll feed them into a conversation with Emmanuel. Uh, Emmanuel will be getting all of your comments and questions with your email attached. So if you have something you'd like him to follow up on or whatever, just stick it in the chat room and he will get it. Uh, may I point out uh, that I am here with you. So uh, Signal, WhatsApp, messaging, emails, I'll get them all afterwards, but they won't be of much use to the conversation. Uh, so please do stick them into that chat room. And with therefore no more ado, Emmanuel, the floor is very much yours. Welcome. Yeah, thank you very much, Michael, for this introduction. Um, just, just a few words. Shortly before Michael and I um, had a discussion earlier this year uh, uh, to, 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 for, for me to be present at one of these webinars, I had just read a, a press article describing how good 2020 had been and how much better 2021 would be. But however, to be fair, exactly a year before, as lockdown and the virus did, the, the mood was indeed very gloomy. And I, for once, but once I realized I was not going to die um, of COVID, I really thought, that's it. Um, I'll have to find another work, another job in another industry pretty soon. So I thought it would be really interested to, interesting to, to look at what happened um, in the back market, very, very bizarre market, and sort of spice it up with a number of observations of what we actually saw at FDC during 2020. Um, Michael? Yes. Yep. So next slide. So basically, very very briefly. So I had the infrastructure in my time franchise at FDC. 
where we do M&A, financing, advisory work across Europe. There are about 30 of us. And virtually most of our business is, um, to, uh, is with European firms or international firms investing in, um, in that market. So going on to page three, so we can actually wonder if anything actually happened uh, in the European M&A market. So uh, very briefly, so you see three years, 2018, 19, and 20. 18 is um, a bit uh, off the mark because it was an extremely good year in Europe with a number of large mega transactions. Uh, but then if we compare 19 and 20, we see that those years are actually pretty uh, similar in terms of number of transactions. In deal size, um, uh, sorry, uh, number of deals in 2020 is actually lower, but the deal size is approximately the same, suggesting that less transaction led to bigger deals. Um, what we actually, what this doesn't show is that actually in April and May, um, those were the 23-year low in the M&A market in Europe. And December was the best month almost ever in the M&A market. So actually what happened is that indeed for a number of months, the market cratered and then picked up pretty strongly. But if we move into page four, we looked at how the, um, this, uh, the, the, the year unfolded and we can actually see three periods. So looking at what happened on a month by month basis, we can see that in the first month, even almost to the end of March, even as China was closing down and a number of European markets were closing down, the market actually held up pretty well. It's only during, uh, the, uh, during April and until August that uh, the market actually stopped literally completely. We think that uh, it actually stopped only completely in three of those four or five months, uh, in April and May, but then in August. And what we don't see here is that in June and July, uh, the market was actually pretty active just before summer, but it's actually hidden by the fact that the previous month uh, of um, 2019 were actually extremely high. And then from September onwards, uh, what we see is that actually the market really picked up and the number of transactions grew up as did uh, the, the deal size as well. So, um, we were actually really busy. Did all markets uh, react the same way? So, um, so Michael, I think I've got a few questions here. Emmanuel, I've got a poll here for the audience. Which European M&A markets do you think reacted most to COVID-19? France, Germany, Italy, Sweden, or the UK? Um, so the poll's out there for you to answer. Um, Manuel, they're starting to, we're collecting responses now. 30% mm -hmm. uh, of the audience have voted, over 50%, over 65% uh, getting there. I'll leave it open for just a few more seconds because we've got a couple more polls coming up as well. Sure. But with almost all of the audience voting, I'm going to close that and share the results with you. Um, so the audience believes uh, overwhelmingly, uh, maybe we're quite self-centered here at FS Club, 46% uh, believe the market that reacted most to COVID-19 was the United Kingdom. Okay, so I think next page will give us some answers to that. Um, it, it did indeed, um, but not dramatically. And what we see that all markets were 
in Q2 of 2020. Um, what is interesting, though, is maybe to take two examples. Um, one is Italy, um, and the other one is Sweden, uh, because they both had very different uh, ways of tackling COVID. Italy was the first European market to lock down, whereas Sweden actually didn't um, actually lock its economy down. And what we see is that um, so Italy is the uh, dotted is a green dotted line. Uh, they had a very good year uh, up to uh, Q4 19, and then indeed they dropped. And what we see that then the market has has been picked up quite dramatically, and Sweden. Uh, actually had a low end to 2019, so that's the um, red dotted line. And it was indeed, the, amongst the market we analyzed, the least affected by COVID. And we can actually think that, or we, we can suspect that the fact that the economy wasn't closed down um, in, in that particular market explains also why the m and activity remains fairly buoyant. And then Sweden as Italy had a tremendous end of the year, and they're the two markets which were the most active in Europe. So if we now look at two questions which, which um, actually um, were very present in our minds in 2020, has COVID brought any changes to the structure of the MNA market? Um, and two particular angles to that question. The first one is, do P investors, equity investors, um, benefit from their billions in dry powder and and all did or by European buyer uh, took advantage of the situation by swallowing up uh, European uh, European companies and what we see is actually nothing actually changed really so moving on to page six Michael so what we see uh, and, and here is the financial investors uh, share in the, in the market Across the four markets we decided to analyze, France, Germany, the UK, and Italy, this share uh, hasn't changed uh, in, in the course of the past three years. Uh, about 30% in France, about 20% in Germany, about 25% in the United Kingdom, maybe slightly rising, but like you have to look very closely. And Italy, about 30%, again, maybe slightly rising, but it's certainly not anything to do with COVID. Um, Maybe two interesting points. If you look at um, not the curves, but the histogram behind the curves, you will see that France has been particularly dramatically affected in, uh, what is it, it's April and May, with the market affected. And this is probably due to the fact, to the fact that literally um, the French president asked the economy to close down completely and everyone was sent, was sent home. And then August also was a pretty poor month. And well, but this is quite typical of France actually where, where August is, is always a, a lockdown month. Uh, Germany uh, hasn't been affected. And again, their, their response to the, uh, to the COVID has been very different. First, it was a regional response. It was not a, a national response. And very broad and very, and what we also saw is that the number of cases, of COVID cases in Germany remained pretty limited, at least in the first wave compared to France. And this also might be a reason why the MNA market was much less affected. And when we see that the UK indeed, uh, in April and May was particularly highly, um, also infected by COVID freeze, 
even though the lockdown only took place much later. So it's not entirely due to government action that the, the market actually is up. It's also due very much to interconnections between market and what um, investors are really um, thinking about the, 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 the potential of the businesses that they're buying. Um, so on, on the second slide, on the second uh, slide, yes, um, do, um, I don't know, Chinese buyers or um, Australian buyers um, uh, benefit from that situation? And what we see is that similar to PE, well, nothing actually really changed. We can even maybe see that Italy, or the share of non-Italian buyers in the uh, Italian M&A market actually been lower than before. But it's, again, very difficult to attribute any significant change to the COVID situation. Moving on to page eight, uh, we get into very interesting, again, a very bizarre uh, uh, observation. We've looked at both stock market valuation and um, implied multiple, deal implied multiples. And what we see is that deal implied multiples uh, are broadly um, decreased, well, sort of decreasing slightly. Well, it's difficult to draw any, any conclusion from the trend. Um, and stock market valuations are at worst stable or have even increased. And they've increased to levels which are higher than transaction multiple. So this is very unusual. And this is also probably what explains uh, in the flurry of IPO activity in the second half of the year. Um, what these, these multiples don't um, show is that the, the market is increasingly polarized between two types of uh, businesses. The, there are a number of businesses, and, this, and particularly in the education sector, which is one of the sectors we cover at FDC where multiples were fairly high pre-COVID, about 11 to 12 or 13 times EBITDA. The deal activity continued unabated during all 2020, and multiples are now probably closer to 14, 15, even 16 for even small businesses. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, our aerospace team got zero transaction in 2020. Everything stopped. And um, the industrial team at FDC showed uh, reduced activity, and most of the deals were um, actually at decreased multiples uh, compared to 2019. So what we may, what may explain this situation is that actually the businesses that uh, were transacted were the good ones, and the, the ones which were the most affected by COVID actually weren't the deals didn't close since these buyers stood towards higher multiples. Now, I think I've got a poll question now. So, you haven't. Yeah. Yeah. So, folks, uh, which sector do you think was affected uh, most positively or negatively by COVID 19? Infrastructure and energy, digital, hospitality, healthcare, and insurance. This is going to be followed by a poll by which sector do you think was least affected? So do remember your answer. But for this one, which sector do you think was most affected, either positively or negatively? And uh, well over half the audience have voted, Emmanuel. I'm just going to leave it open yeah. a few seconds. There we go. Vast majority of the audience are going to have a quick close on that one and share the results with people. 
and uh, the uh, our audience, which did get it right, Emmanuel, on the, the UK yeah. being most effective, uh, say it's digital and hospitality in identical proportions. Um, so if that's all right, um, I will move on to the second poll, uh, which is uh, which sector do you think was least effective, uh, folks? Which sector do you think was least effective? And I'm just launching that poll now. So remember, it was digital and hospitality. Uh, and so by definition, I would expect uh, infrastructure and energy or healthcare and insurance. And again, well over half the audience, well over three quarters of the audience have voted. I'll leave it open just a few more seconds for those of you who are thinking. Okay, and just about to close that one. Great, and share those results. So uh, very much infrastructure and energy. So least affected infrastructure and energy at 77%. Uh, most affected digital and hospitality at a dead equal 40%. Uh, have you got what you need, Emmanuel? Um, I do, and I think that's, that, that will make my observations even more interesting. Well, I've been in infrastructure space for best part of the past 25 years now, and I've been telling my clients, um, and, particularly, <laughs> and investors in particular, that the, this um, sector was indeed very resilient, and it proves so. But if you look at airports or toll roads in March or April last year, um, a lot of people would have thought that, well, the resilience <laughs> Was just, there, was just not there. So uh, airports uh, were empty, um, and, and still, um, the, what is interesting is that uh, the, well, the, the market didn't crater, and one of the reasons, I think, is because the, um, the, the debt structures that uh, had been put in place were themselves extremely resilient with long queue periods. And this is probably what made, what ensured the resilience of the equity values. Uh, I don't think it was an, actually an actual flight to quality or to lower risk. Um, I think that there was so much money involved that even the debt remained and, and the structures were, were pretty robust and that, that's it. And in my view, this is very different to uh, what happened um, in other sectors like um, hospitality where even the hotels were empty and the debt structures were much more uh, rigid, and the equity values just cratered completely. Um, healthcare insurance is, is an, an interesting one as well, because it's, it's also very con uh, contrasted. And um, a number of our clients were actually very affected by, um, the, the, well, in a way, the, 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 the regulations or, or what the government asked. Particularly, um, if you looked at that in France, all plans, all planned uh, non-essential non surgeries were cancelled for months and months. So a number of private clinics and hospitals were empty, literally empty. And even though uh, these situations were affected, maybe 30 or 40 percent of, the, um, of the, the, the hospital sector. Uh, the deals were pretty much there in the same number as the year before. So, and, uh, so that, that, in my view, was a bit surprising as well. Um, so if we look now at uh, how so the, the valuations held up or not uh, in the infrastructure, we see that indeed it was resilient in number of transactions. But if you look at deal value or transacted value, uh, which we see on page 10, these um, this value actually decreased compared to 2019. 
So we see that on average about 10 to 11 times EBITDA. But remember the education sector, which is now transacting at 14 to 16. So um, resilience uh, maybe, but um, has it been the sector to invest in in 2020? Not so sure. Digital. Well, and surprisingly, and I think everyone concurred, uh, it's, digital is the only sector to have benefited from COVID. And um, multiples even increased during the year. Uh, what we saw on, on the transaction we were working on is that between March and June, the deal continued and pretty much at the same multiples. And after summer, if you wanted to buy a digital business, you had to pay about two times more EBITDA. So 15 times is now 17 times. And uh, what used to be uh, 15 times uh, historical numbers are now 17 times current EBITDA. So we're talking of a significant uplift in value uh, for digital businesses. And, in, and a number of sectors are actually becoming more, more digital. One of the reasons I think the education sector um, performed so well is that all the private schools uh, and private universities moved to digital virtually immediately in, uh, in, um, in March and now are more sort of digital than sort of traditional businesses. But hospitality, uh, very few transactions, no value. I don't think it's um, worth, uh, worth spending a lot of time on this. And healthcare and insurance also very much reflect uh, the volatility of the businesses um, insurance got virtually unaffected. Um, they, they even performed very well uh, since no one actually um, injured themselves by taking their car, uh, particularly in France where you can take it from, uh, you can go uh, beyond one kilometer from your home. Um, and on the other hand, healthcare, very contrasting as I said, and also a number of distribution businesses that, that very often uh, represent a significant proportion of uh, the the, the M&A transaction in that sector simply didn't happen because the, um, the logistics and the supply chains were completely um, uh, well stopped in some cases or uh, disorganized in others. Two key takeaways, and I think I've managed to, to do that in just about the right amount of time. Um, well, in most sectors, asset prices have um, remained high and, and are even higher now in 2021 than they were uh, starting in 2020. I think that uh, depends both on government support schemes uh, that have prevented liquidity crisis and have virtually always been extended. Uh, if you look at what's happening in France at the moment, so um, you, you had um, government support for furloughing schemes. You had government support for social charges. Um, you had um, interest, quasi-interest-free loans uh, called PGE, uh, guaranteed by the states. Uh, these PGEs, which represent, I think, about 100 billion uh, in the economy at the moment, have all been rolled over. And what happens? It's, it's still debt. Uh, at some point, you've seen some equity as well. So the government is currently introducing a scheme to strengthen the government support scheme uh, to strengthen the equity base of small businesses. And um, this is going to make our job really difficult in that market for the next two years uh, because they are offering eight year uh, bullet convertible debt at five to six percent. So 
typically, um, you should be looking at 9 to 11% for this type of instruments. So, I probably agree. Well, equity investors are going to struggle, I think, doing deals uh, going forward. Financing is still abundant and cheap, and owners have um, all, all been reluctant to adjust their valuation downwards when they had to. Um, closing deals uh, was very complicated in 2020. I think it's becoming easier in 2021 uh, on different multiples. What, uh, what, uh, the, the deals we, we're still struggling to close are the ones uh, which were between six and nine times EBITDA pre-COVID. Those are still trading on six to nine times. The, com the, the complexity is to find on which EBITDA to apply uh, those multiples. Are we looking at, uh, in a way, pro forma 2019 type EBITDAs or are we looking at historic 2020? Uh, 30%. Um, and well, if you anyone reading the press, the FD or Lizico or whatever, will see that there's a growing disconnect between stock market valuation and M&A transaction valuations. So um, this is going to last, for, for, apparently. This is what the market believes. Uh, how long is this going to last? This is one of the questions we we may ask. Uh, and maybe two inter interrogations, and we don't see anything in, in numbers yet uh, as regards those two points. The first one is that a number of businesses are going to go belly up and uh, due to the government sponsored schemes uh, they're not going uh, they're not going under at the moment. Uh, the, in France the number of liquidation is lower in 2020 than it was in 2019 and 18 so which is quite incredible when, when, when you think of it. Um, and also my interrogation is um, uh, how our lives, I mean, to a professional life, also personal, are going to be affected and how about by COVID, are we all going to go back to the office and spend a full week at our desk in the city or somewhere? Or um, are, how we, are we going to shop at the same shops and the same high streets in the same way as we did before? And uh, I'm part of the, the, the people who think that clearly our habits have changed and clearly, this should also have an impact on real estate valuations, particularly the high streets or, um, um, or, or professional uh, premises. And you don't see that in numbers yet. So let's see what the 2021 holds for the real estate sector. Wow, that was excellent, hey. Emmanuel. Thank you very much for that. Um, got quite a few questions here, but folks, please do uh, keep them coming in. Um, Really just to, to, to kick off, uh, Bob McDowell, he's kind of curious, in what sectors do you think the need to refinance in the sort of emergence from COVID will stimulate M&A? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, uh, I, I, as long as uh, government supports are still in place, that will, in my view, very much depend on the uh, on government's politics. Uh, France will support, well, that's the message we get, we support businesses, whatever the cost. So uh, at some point, support will have to recede it, uh, at some point. Uh, and I suspect that the weakest businesses, uh, particularly in high street, um, we, will go under. So this will be a very specific type of M&A, and we see a number of transactions going on as we speak in the retail space, uh, 
where people are buying a number of uh, portfolio of assets and restructuring the debt underneath them and mm. are uh, rede redeveloping them. Uh, that we see. Uh, but because the choice in France was to protect all businesses at high street. Yeah, I think this uh, this medium term look at the structure of the property component uh, in retail, in commercial, et cetera, is going to really change a lot of valuations. Um, but uh, Hugh Purser is curious. You said you said, uh, and he quotes you: "Owners are reluctant to adjust their valuation expectations, even though business plans have changed dramatically." That doesn't seem very realistic. Would you like to comment on that? Um, yes. Um, a lot of the work we do is with entrepreneurs and family-owned businesses. And uh, in a way, um, before I joined FDC, I used to work in, in large investment banks. And in large investment banks, you work with um, institutions in a way. Uh, the people who sell the businesses are institutions and they react really um, in a way, very reasonably or economically reasonably. Now, when you spent uh, the best part of the past 25 years or 30 years building up a business, or you've inherited a business uh, constructed by your great-great-grandfather in the 19th century, selling something that is, represents everything for you or for your family is extremely difficult, even when the values are high. So think when uh, you thought that your business was worth a lot in 2019 and the value has just dropped like 50%. So, uh, so we, it is difficult and, and it might not be economically rational, but in the culture um, of the people we, we deal with, we see a lot of rationality in a way. This is their standing in their own communities that is being, um, uh, that, that in some cases, uh, is being taught, is being under um, uh, uh, scrutiny here. Okay, um, and again, folks, are very interested in questions, comments, observations. I'd love to hear from somebody who's thinking about buying and and or somebody who's thinking about selling. Uh, if if you're out there, uh, and if you want to remain anonymous, just indicate that, and I'll keep it. So, uh, Emmanuel, uh, Hugh is uh, going on a little bit. He's kind of curious. Are you surprised that there's been no particular flight to quality? Um, yes, to, to be fair, uh, I can't say no. Uh, yes, I am. Um, wh what I certainly didn't see in early 2020 and what I now perceive is that maybe the, the definition of quality has changed. Uh, quality used to be nothing, something big and stable and robust uh, and it's been there for like three or four, five, six decades and it's going to be there for another uh, five decades. Um, now, quality may be more defined as growth business. And any business that has shown or demonstrated growth in 2020 uh, is now probably the new definition of quality. Uh, and in that sense, this happened. It's probably why infrastructure that inherently doesn't show a lot of growth wasn't seen as the, in a way, a safe haven. And um, but anything that grew is definitely now maybe what, what can be construed as being the quality business. Hmm. I think a number of us are interested in uh, where digital is headed, uh, not least uh, the way FS Club uh, members tend to be quite intensely digital. Um, I'll start with a question from <coughs> from Mark Heath. Uh, Mark is interested in your views on the M&A potential when thinking of improved valuations of intangible digital assets. So data, intellectual property, software processes, 
Is this disconnect being released when digital assets are valued higher than the goodwill on the balance sheet? Um, so what um, we, we, we very, um, uh, we, we use um, accounting methods to value businesses extremely rarely and the amount of goodwill you may have on your balance sheet, um, especially with regards to IP you may have acquired or anything, actually um, it, it's just a minute proportion of uh, our analysis and most of the, uh, our analysis rests on a discounted cash flows. So um, if um, but both vendors and uh, acquirers of, this is, of those businesses believe that the IP will indeed create uh, revenues and EBITDA, um, then the, the, the value will be, uh, will, will be high and you will, you will reach high multiples. Um, we may see, and we've seen that once uh, a few years back, a business with a lot of IP acquired through uh, NNA in the past. But um, the, that business was unable to develop uh, proper EBDA out of those IP, out of this IP, and therefore uh, the business wasn't valued that high. So no, we don't look at goodwill; we look at future cash flows. Hmm. Now I, I know that your analysis was healthcare and insurance, um, and interestingly, tomorrow we've got Alan Hughes dialing in from Ireland, giving us a lot of detail about the digital care industry. Um, but I've certainly seen a lot of um, a lot of healthcare companies trying to reposition themselves as digital, uh, and I'm sure that's also happening in a, in a lot of other sectors. You know, how much future is there for digital if you can't if you can't define it? I mean, everything's got a computer. Big deal. Um, what's uh, what, what are we looking at here? Is is digital going to be redefined as much more tightly as being uh, genuine software infrastructure? Or is the term going to continue to be abused, or is it just going to be a term we're going to forget about? Um, well, digital is certainly a catchword, and was a catchword before COVID. Um, and um, it, it's what, what I saw last year is that uh, I've tried to help a number of traditional businesses becoming more digital. One one thing is for sure is that they won't be able to do it internally. Uh, the the cultures you need to move to a proper digital business uh, is just like the one you don't find in traditional businesses. So um, will um, M&A enable a traditional business to become a more uh, digital one? Culturally, I've been unable to do, well, they've been unable to, uh, to, 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 to do a leap of faith in a, in a, in a way. Um, when you're um, trading at 10 times EBITDA, how do you justify your board that you have to pay 17 or 18 times? And uh, again, this cultural bias or this cultural, this mentality, traditional mentality uh, has, uh, has been uh, a, very much a, um, an, an impingement to, to, to moving to digital. So traditional businesses will have a mix of call it digital, I don't know how you, you, you call it. Um, everyone does have a computer and sometimes they, they will even use them. Uh, but uh, digital, in my view, will remain the, 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 the new businesses, the new businesses that have a proper ERP system. And you, you can't imagine how uh, old and, uh, and cumbersome are some of the ERP systems we've, we've seen, even with large customers of ours. Um, mm. 
just a new ERP system is something that takes a million, well, depending on how large you are, millions to develop or millions to implement. Uh, but it, ta it takes 100% of your people to use it. And um, what we see is that no one, uh, not everyone, will, will, will move into the digital world. So we still see a difference between the digital businesses that will be valued as digital businesses and the one that will pretend to be digital and will still be remained, uh, which will still be uh, valued as traditional businesses. Well, I'm going to remember that phrase. Everybody's going to have a computer, and sometimes they'll use them. <laughs> that's a that's a good comment about uh, many of the, the companies I know. Now, one of the things that was also intriguing was your very first question to us, and then the slide where okay, we we got the answer technically right, but across Europe, everybody was pretty much in lockstep um, in terms of uh, value and volume, um, and yet we've had Brexit. Um, are you seeing any signs of a divergence in the UK market from where it was uh, a year or two years ago? Or do you expect this to break or do you expect it to continue to be largely a European market? Wow, uh, th th that's a difficult one. Um, what we certainly feared in the M&A market is that the, the, the UK will move away and that we, uh, we will lose all our UK clients and UK opportunities. Uh, that said, uh, this hasn't happened. So uh, why would it happen uh, now? Uh, I don't know. In a, in a, in a, uh, what is for sure is that COVID is not going to change anything to that situation. Okay, yeah, good, interesting. Um, Bob McDowell is curious as well. He's here. Um, the, there's a, a tremendous amount of talk about ESG, environmental social governance. Uh, do you think this ESG agenda is affecting M&A? And is it, if so, is it encouraging it or inhibiting it? Um, so what, a PE friend of mine actually um, told me that uh, ESG is the new compliance. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think in a way this is, uh, there's a lot of box ticking in the, in the PE industry, to be fair. So um, um, this, in my, in my view, this is not going to change much, but a number of sectors will find it increasingly difficult to, um, to, to, to find investors and even lenders. Uh, if you look at the oil and gas industry, where a number of sectors are already struggling to, to, to get financing. Um, th this is one. Others will, might be like uh, steel making as well. So uh, this, I don't think that ESG criteria per se are going to be the, uh, the, the, the difficulty there or the constraint there. However, the general changes or societal changes is going to be big important. Hmm. Now, uh, you know, obviously, we, you know, everybody wants the, the hot tips. So <laughs> looking, for, <laughs> looking forward, uh, where do you see the hot sectors for 20, 2021, second half and first half of 2022? Um, well, you're going to hate me. I don't have any crystal ball here, but I suspect that digital is probably where you want to be. Um, and yeah. Uh, it is not because it's, it just has SaaS or digital 
uh, was attached to to to, uh, to to that sector. It's also because um, returns in the PE industry in traditional for traditional uh, businesses have dropped considerably. So if you KKR or Advent International or uh, or CVC or Simbin or whomever, and you want to deliver 25% to your shareholders, um, just, just almost there's no way to do it with traditional businesses. Um, the, and this is why they are all creating what they call capital or growth capital or development capital units uh, that will invest in digital businesses that will show these 50% per annum growth that everyone is seeking. And therefore, this, in my view, this is going to drive the, the, the market even higher, the digital market even higher. Hmm. And, uh, you know, when I, when I look at this uh, and going forward, I, I'm a little surprised, and maybe, uh, maybe you'll correct me, but the, the real change to me has been the change in the property sector. Um, here in London, we've been seeing void rates increase in the city at about a half a percent a month. I, you know, it was about, I think, six and a half, seven percent at the beginning of the pandemic, and it's now running around 13 and a half, 14. Um, broadly, as leases come up, they're being canceled in a reasonably high percentage. I assume that's going on, you know, really across Europe. Uh, and that should be flowing through, by and large, to the bottom line of the folks in, uh, in digital hospitality and healthcare, um, but also, of course, uh, negatively affecting large commercial property owners. Um, is this going to be a, a transient adjustment, or do you think it's potentially a permanent adjustment? Um, well, I, I think there's, uh, this particular market uh, is very much as the, the crossroads of, of many societal trends. Um, uh, if you look at the, the high street market, uh, it's it's not it's going to behave very differently in my view than the the, the residential market, um, and it's going to very to, to react again very differently to the professional market or commercial centres. Um, the commercial market, uh, it turns out that we actually um, uh, moving offices space and moving offices in six months time. Um, the rent is exactly the same as before, uh, even a bit higher. But in France, you, 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 you're going to get the catch. Uh, in, in France, uh, you actually, uh, are, as a business, you are committed to three, six, or nine years. And okay, the lease, uh, the lease rate is exactly the same. We're going to get 18 months free rent. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so there's a disconnect between what you see reported in indices and what the market is actually um, witnesses at the moment. And since there are very few um, real estate transactions, uh, this hasn't translated yet through the uh, the, the, the bottom line uh, to the bottom line of the real estate businesses. Um, and there are also a number of things that are happening that may actually um, uh, compensate partly this situation. Um, a lot of people are working on co-working, co-leaving um, uh, concepts, whereby um, you may have at the same place uh, where you have, let's say, one apartment, you'll have three studios uh, that are going to be shared. Uh, everyone uh, will be paying a bit more than if they were uh, renting a studio, or a bit less if they were renting a studios, but overall, as, a, as an owner, you will get more rent. And 
we see a lot of content being developed uh, where uh, the uses are increasingly mixed. And basically, the idea is to make the usage more intensive than before. So maybe we get to the situation in the plans, uh, we'll pay less for the rent, but the owner, by a more intensive use of the, of the real estate space, will actually get uh, more revenues from, from that. Mm. So let, let's see what uh, the jury's out, let's say. We, we'll see in a few years. It's not going to happen overnight. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was picking up a report um, yesterday here on the London market, and it said that uh, traditionally the very top uh, class of uh, office quality space would be seen by about 35% of potential buyers. And actually the bookings to view those are up about 50%. So people are looking and they're prepared to pay and they're even prepared to pay you know, for the top quality, but, and yet the leases are, are being rolled off as well. So uh, a real change there in, in what commercial users expect. Well, we could go on for hours, I know, Emmanuel, and uh, I, I think what's been great today is uh, your sound quality has been super, although the video has kind of faded in and out a few times. Um, so okay. we've picked up everything, and the slides were excellent, and your research was super. And if you don't mind, uh, as ever, I'm going to have to call it quits as people are thanking, but I'll uh, just, uh, if I may, make three quick rounds of thanks. Firstly, as ever, to our sponsors. Uh, the challenges of M&A, the dog-eat-dog dog world that leads to Schumpeterian you know, creative destruction is out there and one that it's really fascinating to take a look at in such a volatile year and yet uh, maybe not such a volatile year. I'd like to thank you, the audience, as ever, for coming. As I mentioned, uh, tomorrow we'll be looking in depth at uh, digital healthcare uh, with an Irish perspective. Uh, but as ever, please do go to the website and see what's there. There's a rich feast of events uh, available for FS Club members. Uh, but finally, and most importantly, Emmanuel, I'd, I'd like to thank you. Um, you've done a tremendous amount of work to really uh, give us some solid depth in, the, in these areas. And I found it absolutely thrilling. And I look forward to you and FDC uh, raging and rampaging across the European M&A landscape and uh, telling us what you find because it helps I think to inform a, a lot of decisions out here so thank you very much unfortunately I can't uh, give you a digital uh, solution to online applause it works at all but I do have a um, a non-digital analog solution which is my Korean karmic clapper uh, and I'm afraid that will have to do as applause uh, but we'd love to have, have you back with your views as, as the market evolves perhaps next year so thank you very, very much for coming. Thank you very much, Michael, for hosting.